I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 20. Our text today is verse 41 through verse 47 in the end of the chapter in a message entitled, Christ is Lord. In 1960, the largest earthquake ever recorded hit the nation of Chile. It originated around 100 miles off of the southern coast on May the 22nd of that year. The fault displacement source of the earthquake extended over an estimated 600-mile stretch of the Nazca Plate. The shock had a magnitude of 9.5. The enormity of the shift that took place on the seafloor caused tsunamis, so much so that waves arrived nearly 15 hours later in the Hawaiian Islands, 6,000 200 miles away. Similarly, spiritually speaking, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus shook the entire world. It not only shook the entire world, it has implications for all of eternity. We focused last week on the resurrection of Jesus in the last section of Luke, and we learned that in the resurrection of Jesus, Prophecy was fulfilled, his identity was confirmed, the forgiveness of sinners was secured, death, hell, and the grave were defeated, and our hope was made certain. So much so that God is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living, because all are living to him. Not only did the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus shake the world, but who he is can shake and transform our lives as well. We left off in Luke with everyone afraid to ask Jesus any more questions. Jesus then goes on the offense and he raises a question for them. He often would do that. He took the initiative to criticize inadequate views of who he is as the Christ. The name Christ, of course, meaning Messiah, and he teaches them something about who he is in these few short verses. So what I want to do is work through these verses uh, piece by piece, really, before we arrive at our conclusion. And I begin with verse 41. Then he said to them, how can they say that the Christ is the son of David? The implication was either that Christ was not a descendant of David, or that in some way Christ was more than an earthly descendant of David. The first option was ruled out. The second option is the correct one. And the proof that Jesus is superior to David emerged in the resurrection. Jesus then quoted from Psalm 110 and verse 1, verse 40. 2 of Luke chapter 20 says, For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord declared to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David called Christ my Lord, and he said that he was exalted by being at God's right hand. When we speak of the right hand of God, we are speaking about the place of power and of prominence. The son of David was David's Lord by the power of the resurrection. 
In Acts chapter 2 and verse 34 and 35, Peter used the same verse from Psalm 100 and verse 10, or 110 and verse 1, I should say, to prove that Jesus' superiority is based on the resurrection. Now verse 44, David calls him Lord. How then can the Christ be his son? David realized the son who was to be the Messiah would be divine because David called him Lord. And then we pick back up with the emphasis in Psalm 110 and verse 2. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, rule over your surrounding enemies. Your people will volunteer on your day of battle. And in holy splendor from the womb of the dawn, the dew of your youth belongs to you. Verse 4, the Lord has sworn an oath and will not take it back. You are a priest forever according to the pattern of Melchizedek. Verse 4 of Psalm 110 indicated that the Messiah would replace the old covenant's temporal Levitical priesthood with the eternal priesthood of Melchizedek. The entire psalm describes the Messiah as an eternal priest and king. The writers of the New Testament understood this also, and they made Psalm 110 one of the most quoted Old Testament texts. Verse 1 of that psalm is quoted not only by Luke, it's also quoted in the first chapter of Hebrews, when the Son of God is exalted as the eternal God and the one to whom worship should be ascribed. And David called Christ his Lord, here in verse 42 and verse 44. The person David referred to as my Lord is the Messiah. The idiom used for my Lord represents a way of speaking to or about a king. The opening two words of the psalm, the Lord, is literally Yahweh. So Yahweh says to my Lord. So I want to ask and answer this question in these few moments that we have together. What does it mean that Christ is Lord? What does the Bible teach about who Christ is as Lord? Well, first of all, we learn that Christ is Lord over all. Someone who is a Lord has authority, control, or power, usually a ruler of some kind. People generally use the term as a title of respect toward earthly authorities. The word was used to refer to the emperor, but only after it was believed that he was made God in a ceremony, which of course was not possible, but that was their thought process. After the resurrection, the title Lord applied to Jesus Christ carried a much higher meaning. The declaration, Jesus is Lord, is a way of declaring his identity as God. You remember the disciple Thomas when it finally occurred to him that Jesus was in fact risen from the dead? You remember what his exclamation was? My Lord and my God. That's what he said of Jesus. Now I want to draw our attention for a moment to Philippians chapter 2. And I want to make reference here uh, to verses 5 through 11 in Philippians chapter 2. Paul writes, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, 
who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The attitude and actions of Christ remind us that there is no limit to what God would do to demonstrate his love according to his holiness and to demonstrate his saving power to us. God exalted Christ as Lord. The word exalted might mean super exalted, magnified in the exaltation, lifted up in the exaltation. And Christ is exalted over the whole of creation so that the whole world is brought into submission to the Son. A day is coming when all will acknowledge him so that at his name, every knee will bow. And Paul emphasizes this by driving home the point when he says every knee in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. Now, one of the reasons that people remain in their sin, in their brokenness, and their separation from God is their own pride. Their pride blinds them from the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ. They can't see the grace that is being extended to them. And they're unwilling to humble themselves in the sight of a holy God. Carl Jung, the atheist psychiatrist, told of a man many years ago who asked a rabbi, how come in the olden days God would show himself to people, but today nobody ever sees God? And reportedly, the rabbi said, because nowadays, nobody can bow low enough. There is coming a day when the angels and the saints in heaven will bow before him. And the people on earth will bow before him. And even those who are under the earth, the devil and the demons and those who are in hell now, will bow before him. Everyone will someday acknowledge who he is. Now, not all will be saved. There will be many who will acknowledge him as Lord because they've repented and believed in Christ. But there will be many who will acknowledge him as Lord and who he is in judgment because it will be evident and plain for everybody to see. Paul draws on the idea of Isaiah 45 and verse 23 in this passage in Philippians chapter 2. Isaiah 45 and verse 23 says, I have sworn by myself, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that to me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall take an oath. In Isaiah, it is Yahweh to whom all knees will bow and all tongues will confess. In Philippians, it is Jesus. And the connection is showing us that Jesus is in fact Lord. And then according to Revelation 17 and verse 14, in the last days the enemy will make war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will conquer them because he is Lord of lords and King of kings. Those with him are called chosen and faithful. So watch this. 
There is no power that is greater. There is no king that is above him. There is no Lord who might oppose him and win. Christ is Lord over all. I love the way Albert Moeller put this. He said, for the Christian, the future is secured by the sure and certain fulfillment of God's promises and the comprehensive realization of Christ's reign over all powers in heaven and on earth. According to the historic evangelical faith, the exaltation of Christ includes his resurrection, his ascension, his session with the Father, and his glorious return. And each of these realities represents an essential aspect of Christ's reign as King of kings and Lord of lords. In the end, all other rulers will have been conquered or abolished. And Christ will reign alone as supreme. He is Lord over all. If Christ is Lord over all, then let us as the body of Christ be determined to exalt him. Let us as the body of Christ determine that there will be nothing that would hinder us from the exaltation of Christ. And let's understand who he is in his exalted position at the right hand of God the Father and what it means for us to surrender our lives to him. And then second, Christ is Lord over his church. God raised him from the dead and has placed him above all things. Listen to what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 21 to 23. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Christ was raised from the dead. Christ ascended bodily into heaven where he now is. And Paul used four different words, rule, authority, power, and dominion. These four words, rule, authority, power, and dominion, are encompassing of all spiritual power. So what is being communicated is that whatever level of spiritual power exists, Christ is above them all. Whatever level of power could potentially exist, Christ is above them all. And this is true not only in this age, it's also true in the age to come, indicating his absolute supreme power in the entire universe. Now, the Bible indicates that God has put all things under the feet of Christ. This reflects on Psalm 8 and verse 6, where David points to the honor given to man to rule over God's creation on earth. This goes back to the words of God at creation when he said that man would fill the earth and rule over it, that he would have dominion over it. So what the first Adam lost through sin, Christ as the second Adam regained and restored it all. The final fulfillment of these things awaits the return of Christ and final victory so that his death, resurrection, ascension, and enthronement at God's right hand, make the outcome absolutely certain, without doubt, without any uh, potential of not coming to pass. 
Now, the scripture does not just say that Christ is the head of the church, but that God gave him as head over all things to the church. It's an important distinction. Christ's headship over everything in the universe is a gift to us. John MacArthur pointed to one of the early catalysts in the Protestant Reformation. There was a book by John Huss or Jan Hus, depending on how you want to say it. He was a Bohemian Christian who preceded Martin Luther by a full century. The book was De Ecclesia, meaning the church. And one of Huss's most profound points was proclaimed in the title of his fourth chapter, Christ is the only head of the church. Huss wrote, Neither is the Pope the head, nor are the cardinals the whole body of the true, holy, universal church. For Christ alone is the head of that church. If you know a little bit about church history, you know that Huss's candor cost him his life as he was declared a heretic and he was burned at the stake in 1415. A statue of him is in the public square in Prague. Some of you have been there. Some of you have been to the place where he ministered, the church that he served. More than 100 years later, already at odds with the religious establishment, Martin Luther read De Ecclesia. And after finishing the book, he wrote, I have hitherto taught and held all the opinions of John Huss unawares. In short, we are all Hussites without knowing it. Now, I want to draw this down and help us understand what it means that Christ is Lord over his church. It is Christ who purchased the church with his own blood. Because Christ has purchased the church with his own blood, that means that the church does not belong to us. The church belongs to Christ. It cost him his life. He was willing to give himself in our place. He was willing to be made sin for us. He was willing to become the propitiation for our sins so that the wrath of God would be satisfied. It is Christ who has purchased the church with his own blood. It is Christ who is the cornerstone of his church. Any structure that is built has to have a solid foundation, and the cornerstone represents who Christ is in the church. So, The superstructure of the church that is built is built and founded on Christ. He is the one who is the foundation of it all. He is the one on whom it all rests. Christ promised that he would build his church. And he said that even the gates of hell would not prevail against it. That he promised that church would be built and advanced. So what we understand in the building of Christ's church is that even when we look around us and we see the darkness, even when we look around us and we see the chaos in the culture, even when we look around us and we see the uncertainty of it all, and we see people falling away, and we see Christianity changing in the West where we live, sometimes we would be tempted to think that somehow the church of the living Christ is not moving forward or advancing. And we would be wrong. Because God is drawing a family to himself from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And Christ promised that he would build his church. And then Christ has given his word to the church. So when he spoke, it was the living word 
delivering to us what would be the written word. He's told us about himself, how we can be reconciled to God, how we're to live as disciples, and what he wants his church to be about. Churches and believers can get themselves into trouble when they begin to think that the church belongs to them. It does not. The church belongs to Christ. And we are his servants. We belong to him. And he's the only one that is to be exalted in our midst. He's the only one that is to get the glory in our midst. He's the only one who is to get the allegiance in our midst. Because he's Lord over the church. Now verse 45 of Luke chapter 20. While all the people were listening, he said to his disciples, Beware the scribes who want to go around in long robes and who love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and say long prayers just for show. These will receive harsher judgment. Who's he talking about here as the scribes? He's talking about religious people who were in a position of teaching and a position of prominence. They would have generally been viewed as people who did good things. They were involved in religious activity. They're doing good things. They're busy. But note the problem. They were drawing attention to themselves. They needed to be needed. They needed to be recognized. They needed attention. They sought allegiance. And by virtue of their position and their study, they were privileged. But it got to them, and they took it for granted. And they're expecting people to look to them. And the main problem is that they were doing it for themselves. The main problem is that they were drawing attention to themselves for their own purposes. And as Joseph Bailey observed, no person can foster the impression that he or she is great and then exalt a great God. So Jesus had a warning. Such persons will receive a harsher judgment, according to verse 47. You remember when Jesus concluded the parable of the foolish manager in Luke chapter 12? He said, from everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. Jesus says, watch out for yourselves. Don't be the people that are drawing attention to themselves. Don't be the people that are trying to draw allegiance for themselves. Don't be the people that are trying to get noticed by others. That's not who we're to be as the people of Christ. The people that we're to be as the people of Christ are people who recognize that there is only one Lord over his church, and he is Jesus Christ. And the warning for us is let us be determined to exalt him. And let us be determined, that is his church, to let nothing hinder us from exalting Christ. Let us remember that there is only one who is seated on the throne, and he is worthy. And yet he's drawn us to himself so that we might walk with him by faith. And that brings me to the third and last point of today. Christ is Lord over our lives. Now you'll note here 
we've gone from the big panoramic of Christ as Lord over the whole deal, like everything is under him. Now we've said as the church, the called out ones, the ones who are gathered together to serve him, he's also Lord over his church. The church is carrying out the redemptive mission of God in the world. It's bringing glory to God with good works that we do as a result of our salvation. And now we come down more personally to say Christ is Lord over our lives. So the one who saved us is Lord over our lives. And we need to understand what this means practically. This is part and parcel of what it means to be a disciple. To be a disciple means that we fully surrender our entire lives to him. 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 23 says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now here's the reality for us as disciples. We have an inner, private, unseen to others aspect of life. Everybody does. And then we have an outer, visible, and public life that is seen and heard by those we come into contact with day to day. The outer life eventually exposes the inner life. The goal is that both would be consistent and that Christ would be Lord over both. The call is to surrender. And to say that we should surrender to Jesus is not a mere platitude. It's not a nice religious expression. But rather it is saying that if he is Lord over all, and he is, and if he is Lord over his church, and he is, and if he is Lord over our lives, and he should be, then we want to relate to him in a way that honors him and is according to his word. W.Y. Fullerton wrote a biography of F.B. Meyer in the early 1990s. F.B. Meyer was a Baptist preacher in London in the 19th century. And in the midst of a very successful ministry, Meyer confessed something was lacking in his life and his ministry. J.H. Jowett told this story. He said, Dr. Meyer has told us that his early Christian life was marred and his ministry paralyzed just because he had kept back one thing from the bunch of keys he had given to the Lord. He said, every key save one. The key of one room was kept for personal use and the Lord was shut out. The effect of the incomplete consecration was found in a lack of power, a lack of assurance, a lack of joy, and a lack of peace. The joy of the Lord, he said, begins when we hand over the last key. We sit with Christ as soon as we have surrendered our crowns and made him sole and only ruler of our lives and its possessions. F.B. Meyer experienced the lordship of Christ when he said that he handed over the last key. He had kept back that one key to the room in his life, and it had brought him great defeat. So the question is, have you yielded the keys to every room in your life to Christ as Lord? call is to surrender. But then I believe the call is to obey. If he is Lord of your life, you're going to want to do what he tells you to do. 
You're not going to want to do what he's telling you to do from a performance-based mentality, a try-harder, do-better idea. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that we are freely saved by the grace of God, that he gives us the gift of eternal life because he loves us. His grace is super abundant in our lives, and we desire to honor him and do what he wants us to do with our lives because he's worthy. And when you're living with that type of motivation, it changes everything because you want to honor him and do what he has called you to do with your life. The early Christians took seriously Jesus' title as Lord, so much that they were willing to give their lives for the sake of the gospel. Even today, there are people around the world who are losing their lives for the sake of the gospel. There were more people martyred in the 20th century than all centuries combined leading up to that, and it has not slowed down at all as we have raced into the 21st century. But in those early days, it was particularly intense, and I think of Polycarp who was the 86-year-old bishop of Smyrna. And in A.D. 156, Polycarp was taken custody for refusing to bow and call Caesar Lord. The city officials asked him to repent of saying that, to recant what he had said. And their reasoning was, what harm could it do to say that Caesar is Lord and save your life? It all seemed so simple. All Polycarp had to do was say, Kaiser Curios, Caesar is Lord. And his life would have been spared. But according to the early writings of church history, Polycarp proclaimed, For 86 years I have been Christ's slave, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And so Polycarp bravely went to his death in the Colosseum. A slave of Christ, but more free than any of the Roman citizens who watched him burn at the stake. I ask you this question as I come toward a close of the message today. Is Jesus Christ Lord of your life? Romans 10, 9 and 10 and 13 says, if you confess through your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. One believes with the heart resulting in righteousness and one confesses with the mouth resulting in salvation. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the promise of the Word of God. Oswald Chambers, in part of his devotion, drew attention to the story of Peter and made this point. He said the wind really was boisterous and the waves really were high. But Peter didn't see them at first. He didn't consider them at all. He simply recognized his Lord, stepping out in recognition of him, and he walked on water. Then he began to take those things around him into account, and instantly he went down. Why couldn't our Lord have enabled him to walk on the bottom of the waves as well as on the top of them? Chambers said he could have. Yet neither could be done without Peter's continuing recognition of the Lord Jesus. And then he says this, We step right out with recognition of God in some things, and then self-consideration enters our lives and down we go. If you are truly recognizing your Lord, you have no business being concerned about how and where he engineers your circumstances. The things surrounding you are real, 
But when you look at them, you are immediately overwhelmed and even unable to recognize Jesus. And then comes his rebuke, Matthew 14 and verse 31. Why did you doubt? Let your actual circumstances be what they may, but keep recognizing Jesus, maintaining your complete reliance on him. Christ is Lord, undeniably. He's Lord over all. He's Lord over his church. But is he Lord over your life? Father, we thank you today for the truth of your word. For the words of Jesus here in Luke's gospel. We are reminded that there is only one who is worthy of our praise. Father, forgive us for taking our eyes off of you and often sinking. Forgive us for doubting. Forgive us for taking credit. Forgive us for drawing attention to ourselves. And we ask that Christ would be exalted in our lives in both our surrender and our obedience. We pray that he would reign supreme in our church, your church. And that each day we would learn more and more what it means to be conformed to the image of our Savior. I pray now if there are any listening to this message who have not yet repented and believed have not yet embraced Jesus, the gospel, that today would be the day they would say yes to him and their lives would be forever changed. Christ, you are Lord over all and we honor you. We ask these things in your name. Amen.